Welcome to Something Wicked, where each week we will be discussing topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. This week, we will be talking about Ahmad Siraji, the sorcerer from hell. <laughs> Excuse me. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, along with all the other passengers on choosing to ride the Something Wicked Cruise Line, and remind them that this podcast is full of mature language, adult content, and ADHD tangents, because shiny tidbits make my crow brain happy. Enjoy! I wanted to have a little fun with the intro because I know this is going to be a wild ass episode. It was actually the killer's nickname that intrigued me. I heard sorcerer and my inner nerd just went, ah! I love anything to do with magic, black, white, ritualistic shit for movies and games, all that fun stuff. But this guy was apparently a real life sorcerer. To be honest, the first thing that popped into my head was that he was some kind of arsonist because fireball. But <laughs> yeah, this dude was just all sorts of crazy and for real, one of the most, I'm going to say imaginative serial killers that I've heard of. It wasn't how he killed so much as why, and you'll understand as I go along, it gets kind of chaotic. So, starting out with our story, the problem with this guy is that there are different birth dates for him all over the place, and he was born under a different name as well. I'll get to why he changed it later, and for the sake of saving you the confusion, I'm just going to call him Siraji throughout. He came from this tiny little village in Indonesia, so the record keeping wasn't exactly up to par. Ahmad Siraji was born as Nasib Kalawang. Sorry if I butchered that. And he was either born on January 10th, 1949 or on December 12th, 1952 in Medan, North Sumatra, Indonesia. His parents were of Javanese descent, so the island of Java, not Japan. His mother was considered a very docile housewife. Being in Indonesia, one of the biggest religious followings is the Islamic faith, so Muslim, and being from an Islamic household, the role of Siraji's mother under the Islamic law were as follows, quote, she should always bring happiness to her husband, always, and should be a comforter also. The woman should not deny her husband sexual pleasure for no genuine reason. She should not disobey him in any way except that which runs against the will of Allah. She should protect herself from any illicit act as well as protect her husband's properties in the home. She should keep herself attractive always for her husband and keep her husband's house tidy always. She has to keep away from any work that can hinder the survival of her marriage. Anybody whose visit to their home is forbidden by her husband should not be entertained by the wife. This can be understood in many traditions of the prophet. Among them, the best of the women is the one when you look at her, you get joy. When you command her, she obeys you. When you are not with her, she protects you in herself and in your property. And when you invite her into your bed, she does well, end quote. So needless to say, she was never very attentive to Siraji when he was a kid, borderlining neglectful because she was always too worried about pleasing her husband and catering to his every need. Whereas on the other end of the stick, Siraji's father was abusive to him. His dad was a cattle herder by trade, but also the town sorcerer. <laughs> yes, this I wasn't lying. This is a legit title that was given to people. And his father was one of the most revered in the village. 
They had given him the title of Dukun, which derives from the 7th century Malaysian translation Datu, meaning chieftain or village leader. Now, he wasn't the head of the village. He was just, like, super respective. Interesting fact. (laughs) First ADHD rant. Sorry. From way back in ancient times, the Javanese people have always been historically farmers and were very superstitious, especially about things like drought and other natural disasters. So way back when they didn't have any scientific explanation for things that went wrong, they would try and perform indigenous farming rituals to avoid said natural disasters to their crops. The basis of the Javanese mysticism was animism, which is the belief that everything has a spirit, humans, animals, anything in nature, and that it influences everything and everyone around them. They had this book of folklore that they took a lot of their beliefs from called the Selimaton. Again, sorry if I butchered that. And in a statement on the subject I had read from Professor J.M. Vandercroft, he says, quote, The homeostasis sought via the Salamitan has an animistic background, which is part of the Javanese cosmology. Man is surrounded by spirits and deities, apparitions, and mysterious supernatural forces, which, unless he takes the proper precautions, may disturb him or even plunge him into disaster, end quote. So they relied on mystical explanations and would often turn to people who practice witchcraft and other spiritual practitioners for help. These rituals and practices would lead to an increased belief in magic. It was in the 5th century that Hinduism was brought into play and stuck around till about 1,000 years later when Islam was introduced. But they kind of mished it together with the mystic beliefs of Hinduism and animism to make it work for them. So they pretty much picked what they liked and went with it. This lovely new blend was known as the Abangan religion. They believed in Allah along with several other Hindu gods and spirits. They also believed that the powers that the gods granted could be harnessed by a Dukun to perform the magics of whatever they needed at the time. And as far as being, um, you know, after you die, how they handled them, they believed in continuing ties with them, especially the connection between parents and children. And they would hold wakes at regular intervals after death, but stopping at a thousand. So I don't know if this had to do with the grieving process. Like they were trying to gradually get over it more and more. But I think a thousand wakes for someone is just a little bit excessive. Some believed in reincarnation, which is Hinduism. Some thought that the spirits of the dead continued to influence the lives of others after they passed, which is animism, but most believed in the eternal retribution after death from the Islamic faith. And finally, back in the time when Saraji grew up and in the 70s and 80s, magic-based healing was still widely accepted. So... They saw his father and him as these all-powerful spiritual leaders that could grant wishes, cast spells, or heal the critically sick. Saraji's father would get clients that needed help with their health. Some came in to become more beautiful to their partners, to help with finances, marital problems, yada yada, just everything. I know that was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I promise it's crucial to Siraji's background and MO. I did warn you that this was going to be chaotic. So his mother was a devout Muslim. His father, 
I'm not sure I'm going to guess Abangan just because of his practices. And Siraji was raised Muslim as well. Like his mother was dead set on wanting to have him grow up in the ways of Islam. And according to the Islamic scholars, sorcery is actually a forbidden practice. Now, being a devout Muslim, following the role of the wife as deemed by her faith, his mother should have had every right to argue against her husband on his practices. However, she never actually stepped in to stop anything or the abuse. So Sirachi kind of grew up in this confusing ass, abusive, contradictive household. So he didn't know which parents' rules to follow, how he should act, how he should think, and naturally ended up acting out. By the age of 10, he started stealing shit from people and would start fights in public with other kids because he was also getting bullied outside of the home by his neighbors and other kids and everything like that, saying he was crazy because his dad was a witch doctor and he wasn't normal. Ugh. <laughs> Yay, grooming your children to hate things you don't understand. Isn't it just precious? A neighbor had been interviewed later on about how Siraji was as a kid and said, quote, I've been here since 1962. We grew up together and even played when we were kids. However, he started to grow evil in the sense that he committed thefts and got into fights, end quote. So he at least had one friend growing up, but apparently that wasn't enough to sway him from doing stupid stuff. I don't know how serious these fights were or who he stole from, but honestly, it just sounds like typical kid shenanigans to me. I mean, the kid was abused at home, bullied in public, had some bass backwards tug of war on how he was raised, so I can't really blame him when he was younger for doing stuff like that because it just seems like he had this attitude of, if I can't get people to like me normally, I'm going to get their attention in other ways, you know? Every kid acts out in some way. I think the severity of it honestly depends on how the home life is, and he didn't exactly come from a stable one. So, ergo, fights and theft. When he was around 18, he ran away from home because he couldn't deal with the abuse from his father anymore, so he was on his own for about a year. At age 19, he got thrown in jail for theft and public violence. He got sentenced for 10 years. From what I understand, they weren't like felony level crimes, more petty. However, Indonesia don't fuck around when it comes to charging people or the interrogation process for that matter. They legit torture people that are brought in. Most of the time, it could be crimes that are based on hearsay and the cops will mess you up to the point that you will confess to whatever they want to hear. To give you an idea of the severity on this, there was a video that blew up a few years back that showed an interrogation of a man that was accused of stealing cell phones. The cops used a snake, like this big-ass constrictor snake, to get a confession out of him. This kid sounded like he was probably around 18 to 20 years old. They taunted him with it, sticking its tail in his face, pissing it off, which was right next to this dude the whole time and they wrapped it around his neck essentially strangling him as he was crying and they were jeering at him and laughing and he eventually confessed to the crime but again who wouldn't to that and mind you 
torture by snake is a common practice in the police stations at Indonesia. And it's not even the worst. There were reported two other men, uh, Mr. Hortoyo and Bobby, that were brought in because they had broke into someone's house. And they beat them up and verbally abused them. So when they were towed into the police station during the investigation, they were made to strip to their underwear, sprayed with ice-cold water, beaten, and verbally abused. Mr. Hartoyo claimed that he was sexually assaulted, and Bobby was forced to perform oral sex on one of the officers, and they refused to let Bobby use the bathroom when he needed to and instead made him urinate on Mr. Hartoyo's head. After all of that, they were locked up. And not allowed to contact anyone, including family, which is against the law. Mind you, even in Indonesia, you are allowed to contact somebody, your lawyer, family, whatever. And Mr. Hortoyo was actually also savagely beaten again by an officer because he had confessed to a cellmate that he was gay. The next day, the men were allowed to talk to their fellow NGO co-workers, which I guess is where they worked, and both filed a complaint against the police department. They weren't released, but instead made to write a statement to the village chief saying that they wouldn't indulge in any more homosexual activity. So this is my point. They brought them in on the basis that they committed a B&E and assaulted someone. But now they're flipping the script completely and charging them for being homosexual. And that's what they're holding them on after all this torture and everything else they put them through. And the final piece I found was that there was a documented case from the period of January through June of 2016, a total of 18 people were tortured in interrogation in those few months. Of those 18, three of them were children, two were suspected terrorists, and one was convicted of premeditated murder. Three of those people died as a result of the torture, and the other 15 were slightly or seriously injured. The children said they were forced to admit whatever crime they were suspected of and had to sign a BAP or police investigation report admitting that they did it. They were coerced to confess by means of being slapped, electric shock, being threatened with a gun. They were forced to sleep on their backs on the cement ground, which ended up with one boy being injured to the point of only being able to crawl around. So a wooden block was placed on his thigh to set his leg, but that was repeatedly trampled on. They were beaten until their diaphragms were injured. Their heads were pushed into toilets until they couldn't breathe, and their penises were beaten until the skin blistered on it. In 2015, a lawsuit was presented to help compensate the surviving victims of torture by the police, but as of today, the Police Torture Act to obtain information from a suspect has yet to be outlawed and is continuously encouraged by government officials, local officers, and even from the bribes of disgruntled citizens towards the suspects. So having that knowledge, you can probably imagine what Siraji went through when he was toted in at 19, which... I know that Indonesia isn't the only country that does stuff like this, but this just needs to be abolished everywhere because, you know, again, a, a neighbor that thinks that you grew your bushes too high on his property or some dumb shit can accuse you of something you're toted in, tortured, or if you're brought into a place that doesn't allow torture for some reason, that neighbor can bribe the cop to torture you and they will do it. Like, this is terrible. I can't imagine what these people went through. Like, I, 
I agree that there are some people out there that are evil, like, like Siraji, that sometimes, sorry to say, deserve torture. But people like that kid that just steals cell phones, like, why? Why is that a thing? <laughs> sorry. Anyway, after he was released, um, he's now about 29 to 30 years old, Siraji decided that he wanted to turn a new leaf. He changed his name from Naseeb Kelawang to Ahmad Siraji so people wouldn't associate him with his past crimes, even though he moved back to his hometown where everyone already knew who he was. Not one for smart making on that, but whatever, it's his choice. He didn't want to do the crime anymore and would try to live a simple life by being a cattle farmer like his father. Until a couple years later when he got arrested for theft of cattle. Because why bother buying your own in <laughs> to butcher and sell when you can get the meat for free? Ha ha! <laughs> Sorry. Dad humor runs rampant in my household and they're starting to rub off on me. <laughs> help <laughs> there's no info on how long he spent in jail this time but his father had passed during his incarceration and after he was released again he decided it was time to tap into the cosmos <laughs> and by that i mean run off to the jungle and learn the ways of the sorcerer like his father so even though the man beat him constantly when he was growing up he was still striving to be like him well that's a red flag <laughs> but because there are varying practices by different spiritual leaders, it's hard to determine whether he learned from one or several. The overall umbrella seems to be shamanistic in nature, mostly medicinal, including things like midwife training, acupuncture, spiritual massages like Reiki, it's where you draw out the energies and pains of a person, herbal medicines, and aromatherapy. So, it's not known whether he kind of mished a bunch of things he learned from shamans and his father, or if he just winged it and decided he was going to do whatever he wanted, which makes sense if he followed the Abangan faith, not disrespecting it, just saying he might be used to the idea of being eclectic. So he kind of made his own magics to seem more powerful to people. He claims that he only ever learned from his father and that his acid trip of finding true purpose made him hallucinate his dead father telling him when he was 10 years old that he, <laughs> that he had to drink the saliva of 70 dead women <laughs> to gain supernatural powers and become invincible. <laughs> what? What in the fucking call the conqueror shit is this? Like, Volca, we need the breath of Volca. That will stop this madman. What? <laughs> so, God. so, in Indonesia, it is also believed that certain people are just born with supernatural abilities and the means to channel spirits better than others. When Siraji told them he was one of those people because his father was that village's Dukun, which, mind you, his father was a self-proclaimed sorcerer, but they still gave him the honor. They just fell in line. Like, they gave him the same title of Dukun and started coming to him for 
all their issues that clearly only magic could solve. At this time, he also got married to three women who happened to be sisters. Their names were Tumini, Tumina, and Ngatia. His mother was not happy about this. Not that he married multiple women, because he was a Muslim, so he was allowed, but because they were siblings. On his marriage, his mother said, quote, I wouldn't forbid him to marry two, three, four, five women, but not women who are siblings. As a Muslim, he shouldn't have done so. We advised him three times, but he was still unrepentant, end quote. So with these women, he also had nine children. There's literally nothing on them, so I can't give you any info. Sorry. As the town sorcerer, he would offer the same services as his father. People legit thought he had magical powers, so they would go to him for all their problems. But even though he was revered and seen as a powerful spiritual leader, people were still ashamed to admit that they went to him for help. Kind of like back in the day when someone suggested a therapist and people were like, therapist? What? No, I'm not crazy. I don't need to see a shrink. There's nothing to be ashamed of to need to see someone if you think you need help. And for the people in that village, it was their dukun. A sorcerer, mind you, in pretty much a lot of other parts of the world is just equivalent to someone that studies homeopathy or is a psychic or fortune teller. So none of the customers' families, because they were ashamed, would have any idea what happened to them if they went missing, which only gave Siraji a kind of anonymous alibi. Over a period of 11 years, from 1986 to 1997, 80 families, 80, would come forward about female members that had gone missing. What was happening was that these women would go to Siraji, tell him all about the issues they were having, and ask for a spell to help them. He would charge these clients anywhere from $200 to $400 a piece and promise some magical solution for them in a form of a ritual. And being a dukun, they never defied him. He had already had it in his mind that he was going to kill these women from the moment they set foot in the door. So he was already like, that's my goal. I'm going to kill these people. He would have one of his wives accompany them into the rice field so that the women would feel safer because these rituals always had to be performed at night, of course. He would then have the women either help him or make them dig the holes that he would place them in, essentially digging their own graves. He would then tell them that he had to bury them up to their waist for the ritual to start, so naturally they obeyed and sat down in the holes. And without warning, he would strangle them with an electric cable, which would take anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes until they died. Then he would pretty much make out with them to suck the saliva out of their mouths, and after he was finished, he was his wife and him would strip them naked, and Siraji would point their heads facing his house and bury the rest of them. He believed that by pointing their heads towards his home, their spirits would make their way to him and enhance his powers. <laughs> Now, he had a goal of reaching 70 women, remember, and he wanted to gain invincibility, like, super fast, because power leveling or some dumb shit. So, when clients weren't showing up fast enough, he would hunt down sex workers and promise them that he could perform a spell to get them more customers. So, in turn, 
he was stacking his numbers up on a regular basis. He had later told police that he killed them because it was easier to get away with robbing them if they couldn't report it. He said that he needed the money for his family, but he was already charging them so much, so that obviously was a lie. He just wanted these supposed powers. He actually said, quote, killing is an easy job, which is creepily almost verbatim to what the Wolf of Moscow said in an earlier episode. He continued saying, quote, my father did not specifically advise me to kill people, so I was thinking it would take ages if I have to wait to get 70 women. I was trying to get it as fast as possible. I took my own initiative to kill, end quote. So him and his wife basically worked together to swindle these women to pay for their own debts so Sirachi could have the power and the money. Like, what? <laughs> and and all these women went missing from such a tiny, tiny area. This, like, tiny little village in Indonesia. Why is it not clicking for cops to think something's up when 80 families show up to report missing people? Like, from, again, one of my previous episodes about Dean Quarrel, that was, like, what, an 11 block radius, if I remember correctly, that all of his victims came from? How is that not in the least bit suspicious to them? If I was one of the officers, I'd be like, hey, chief, so there's been a crap ton of people vanishing. Should we maybe do something about it? <laughs> but of course, even if they looked into it, they had no leads because no one was telling anyone they were visiting this motherfucker. And he kept this up until... 1997, when the body of 21-year-old Dewi was discovered by one of Siraji's neighbors. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! His neighbor was walking through the rice field in between their houses one morning to go feed the cattle for his farm when he stumbled across what he thought was a strange mound of dirt in the middle of the rows. He went to the village leader and reported it, and the village leader, the neighbor, and four other men, including Siraji, went to go check out what it might be. They found a piece of wood and started prodding the ground. So, like a bunch of kids that found something weird, their first thought was, let's poke it with a stick. Like, what the hell? Like, so after rooting around for a few minutes, they were met with this horrible stench of rotten decay. That's when the village leader contacted the military, not the local police, just went straight to the top. 
the people from the military told him that if they found a body to not touch it and inform them immediately. So the men started digging into this mound, which mind you, Siraji told the rest of the men at this point to not be afraid if they were to dig up a ghost, which is a weird thing to say. Not body, ghost. Like Ghosts are literally energy. How are you supposed to dig that up? I think he knew he was going to get caught like, oh shit, they got me. So he was cracking jokes. So Dewey's body was uncovered and she had been recognized as a local woman that had gone missing three days prior. The parents were called to the crime scene to identify her body. Dewey's mother was able to identify her because she recognized her legs and then she passed out. My question is, did Dewey have some kind of distinct birthmark or tattoos or scars on her legs that her mother would know of? Because it doesn't really go into detail about that. I mean, I know the whole a mother would know thing, but I think that's just an odd body part to recognize. The police had no leads as to why she ended up being buried there, and her mother only knew that three days before, Dewey had told her she was running out for an errand, but just never came home. It wasn't until a witness came forward that they had anything to go off of. A 15-year-old rickshaw driver named Andreas said that Dewey had ordered a ride from him that night, and she gave him a general direction to go in, but wouldn't tell him where they were headed until they were about halfway there. When he asked her why she was going to see the Dukun, she pretty much brushed it off and said it was none of his business. Which, at the time, I can't blame her. She was apparently... It was reported that she was getting into fights with her fiancé. And if she was ashamed of telling her family about it, I doubt she was going to tell some rando kid her business. But anyway, Andreas dropped her off at Siraji's and that was the last he knew of anything. On April 30th, 1997, Siraji was arrested for the murder of Dewey after the witness statement and the discovery of the body. His wives were also arrested as accomplices, but everyone but Tamini stated that they were under a spell that he cast that compelled them to do his will. Siraji, of course, was denying anything to do with Dewey's death, but both Siraji and Tamini Tamini were interrogated for four days until they confessed, which, as I already described, the Indonesian police's form of interrogation, I'm not shocked that they did. Siraji talked about Dewi and described how long it took to kill her and how he did it with the help of his wife. He then said that he did this ritual with 41 other women that were buried in the rice field as well. This field, I'm guessing, was some sort of communal field because, as I said, the neighbor that found Dewey was also a cattle farmer. So that field probably provided rice for everyone. Which made me beg the question, of course, how would the bodies there affect the crops? Like, would it have made anyone sick? Would the crops die out? If so, would the people have noticed something weird going on with the rice in that 11-year period? So I did a little digging on that myself comes to find out that corpses act as a fertilizer. There was a study done with pigs that were placed on the surface ground in some crops and were discovered to enrich the soil beneath the carcasses. The plant growth itself with the pigs was suppressed for one year, but after three, there was lush growth for the crops. In a study by the University of Tennessee, they did the same thing, but with human corpses and they buried them at different depths instead of just leaving them on the surface. They found that the soil in the testing field ended up being more rich than the soil outside of it. 
they concluded that perhaps the generalized fertilization could be achieved by shallow burials at the right density. And finally, the study with rabbits that was done, they were buried at 35 centimeters in depth and were discovered to have decomposed 30% faster than the carcasses that were left on the surface, which also with the bodies used by the university, clothed corpses were said to both accelerate or slow decomp depending on other factors like moisture, bugs, plant life, etc. So in conclusion, no, the crops more than likely wouldn't have been affected or not enough to have been noticeable. These studies also tie into the theory that Siraji had. One of the reasons suspected by the police for the killings was that of sexual motivations, not unlike a lot of other serial killers. But the corpses, the ones that had not decayed completely, were naked. Siraji, of course, denied this, saying that they only stripped them because the bodies would decay faster that way, like I said in the study, probably by means of observation on his part, I'm going to say. It wouldn't shock me if he went back to check on his victims every once in a while, because killers tend to do that. The local authorities, the military, and the villagers had all gathered in the fields to help dig up the bodies of the victims. They even got this big-ass dump truck in there to make the digging go faster, which is stupid because if there are so many bodies, don't you think that would damage the evidence or break some of them apart, maybe? But besides Dewey, only four other victims were identified because their families came forward. All the other women had decayed too badly, mostly from being buried for so long. So like 95% of them were just bones. So all the unidentified women had to be cremated and left unclaimed. There were, as I said, 80 families that had come forward, but the people stopped looking after they dug up 42 because that was all that Siraji swore he killed. Siraji was brought back to the field at the beginning of the dig and given a dummy so that he could reenact the killings while all the people in the village, including some of the families, looked on. And this creepy ass dude was smiling while he was doing it. Like, he was enjoying playing out the murders again. I saw this clip on a documentary on YouTube, and it was really unsettling. Now, the people that knew him were shocked and never thought he was capable of this, of course, typical, but sad to say that the murders did not really become a thing in any form of news because mysticism is so widely accepted into that culture that people didn't want to put a stain on the other sorcerers in the country, even though there have been accusations of other spiritual healers in Indonesia that get caught for committing fraud, rape, assault. Like, this is a regular thing. But it's rarely filed because no one wants to admit they go see these people. <laughs> Ooh, I just had a brilliant idea. Like, <laughs> sorry. I know that was like completely like, Ooh, look at the shiny. Let's send all the Karens over to Indonesia and let them deal with these people. There would be no keeping this under the rug anymore. I can tell you that. Like, it'd be a shitstorm in the media. Can you imagine? Just a gaggle of Karens flocking outside people's huts, like videotaping everything and just screaming. <laughs> so, sorry. So anyway, on April 27th, 1998, Siraji was convicted of murder. He was sentenced to death. 
And the method of execution in Indonesia is by firing squad. It's done at night in a disclosed location, and the prisoner is only given 72 hours notice. So after the conviction trial, the prisoners are just locked up. They aren't told that they're being sentenced to death or when it's going to happen, just that they're guilty. Tamini was also sentenced to death, but was later commuted to a life sentence. The other two wives were released and they just skipped out to a different town because they were just like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want people to know me. I'm just gone. And on July 10th of 2008, Ahmad Siraji was executed. After his death, his body was supposed to be buried in his hometown of Delhi, Sardang. But when he was being transported, the villagers blocked it in protest. They were not having this killer be buried in the same town as their wives, sisters, daughters were killed in. And no one opposed this more than Dewi's mother. She was straight up beyond insulted that anyone would even suggest him being there. She said, quote, why don't you just dig up my daughter's tomb and put his body inside so that the murderer and his victim would stay together and we'll pay them a visit together. It's just that I really pity her daughter. She was just two years and two months old when her mother passed away. She only knows her mother through her photograph. Dewi was my daughter. Sometimes I feel that she would come back one day. I can't forget her. It feels that she is still here with me. I feel miserable every April. That's when she left home. It's as if she's going to come back. To me, she is still away traveling somewhere. My only wish is for her to come back. I am not willing to face the reality. Prahara, Dewi's daughter that she had left behind now in her teenage years, also was interviewed by reporters on her mother's death. She was visibly upset and not able to stop crying, saying things like, I miss my mother terribly. Why did it have to be her that was killed? The impact that Siraji left was felt by the entire village and some neighboring ones. He was buried at Kaling Garanda Public Cemetery, which is several kilometers away from his hometown, so it wouldn't anger the locals any further. And they were pissed. Like, they went over to his house, found a bunch of belongings under the goat pen in his backyard that belonged to the victims, and just went ham on his property. They literally hulked out and tore his house down to the studs. The house itself was made of plank wood and tree leaves, but still. Like, it wasn't this tiny little shack or anything. It was a decent-sized house, and they just tore it the fuck up. The only thing left standing was the outhouse because it was made of concrete. They wanted to eradicate any evidence of him even existing in that town. So going back to why he was so crazy and why he went past the tipping point and started killing, there were a few theories for Sarati's motivation, including the sexual one, which was ruled out. One of the other ones was that his time in jail, the couple times he had been in previously, had molded him into this killer. There was also talk of him possibly having schizophrenia, but that was never proven. So they think that him having the mental disorder combined with the crap he went through in jail, because let's be honest, he was probably tortured by the cops. And when he was locked up, he didn't exactly have the best odds of defending himself unless he really had superpowers because dude was this scrawny ass beanpole. And that made him snap, they were thinking. I don't think prison made him snap. Maybe other killers have experienced that, like Charles Manson, who claimed to have been sexually brutalized in prison before he actually started his cult. 
Siraji Moore had the ability of manipulation, like really good manipulation when it came to the victims and that he only admitted to so many. He acted like he was disappointed that he didn't hit his goal number, but I think he was just faking it. And here's why. It was drilled into his head from a young age that he had these powers from his father and that because his father was abusive towards him, he wanted to use his powers for good, so to speak. But it got worse when and if he had a psychotic break from his schizophrenia and had his vision in the jungle, combined with the fact that as the Dukun, he started feeling more respect and loved by people, feeding his ego and he became power hungry and that was his trigger he cared more about gaining power and respect from his village and justified killing these women to become more godlike but that coincides with the quote absolute power corrupts absolutely i don't think he ever would have stopped if he didn't get caught 70 would have never been enough so i truly believe that there were dozens of other women that were victims that unfortunately will never be found. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember to follow me on Anchor and tune in next week when we talk about Willie Picton, the butcher of British Columbia. Laters!